Well, last Sunday, July 16th, 2023, the Grateful Dead, Dead and Company, played their final show, closing out a nearly 60-year run as a band. Now, I know that two of you care about that. (laughs) But that's okay. As someone who has a Jerry Garcia tattoo on his leg, it was important to me. And uh, pretty amazing stuff. And it it caused me to, uh, it jarred my memory of an interview that I read with a guitarist who's passed away, Jerry Garcia. His last interview in Rolling Stone in 1993. It's very interesting. The interviewer asked him this question. Are you concerned about what you'd leave behind? It's an ominous question because he would die in two years. Are you concerned about what you'd leave behind? And Jerry's answer is amazing. Let me read it to you. No, I'm hoping to leave a clean field. Nothing, not a thing. I'm hoping they burn it all with me, actually. I don't feel that there's this body of work that must exist. I'd just as soon take it all with me. There's enough stuff. Who needs all the clutter, you know? It's interesting. Because the truth is, the body of work did remain. And it's impossible not to see the tracers of the dead in just about every jam band in the world. And those do still exist, by the way. And, a number, and the number of people who have aspired to play guitar like Jerry is uncountable. I mean, there are uh, thousands of just tutorials on how to get the tone right. And so this uh, legacy, this body of work did remain. His influence through time was ultimately out of his hands. But the interesting thing is the intent was a life that left no mark. That's interesting, isn't it? The opposite happened, but the intent was that his life would not leave much of a trace. The story goes that Jerry died with a smile on his face, maybe at peace. I was texting with a friend of mine who works with students at... Northwestern University in Boston, Northeastern University in Boston. And she was telling me about the stress levels and the anxiety levels among the students. And I said, well, what's going on there? And I'm just going to read you what she wrote back to me. She said, Northwestern emphasizes innovation so much that students are worried that becoming a pediatrician or a psychiatrist isn't enough that those fields don't match the innovative and creative levels that Northwestern, Northeastern expects of their graduates. This expectation to, quote, change the world upon graduation. And the heartbreaking part is they have such noble reasons for entering their careers, but there's an anxiety around how much difference those careers will even make. They don't even have jobs, and they're stressed about changing the world. They may not even know how to change a tire. But the levels of anxiety are high. It's the story of two pathways, one towards the ordinary and one towards the extraordinary. And there's a lot of pressure in our world to be more than ordinary, to make a name for yourself. Ours is a world where the ordinary is so often overrun by this fascination with the extraordinary. 
where personal and corporate significance is found only when we are experiencing greatness or some high level of amazing. That's the new measurement. It's counterintuitive to imagine a boring, basic, day-to-day life as something to aspire to. No one would say that. I just want to live a mundane life. The ordinary is not seen as our best foot forward, as our best self. But there is a risk, however, in the pursuit of the extraordinary life. And the scriptures invite us to reflect on these options. And in our first reading from this morning, from Genesis, it takes us into the very familiar garden scene. Maybe you know the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, the tree and the snake, and all those fun things. But the story itself is ultimately about these two possible paths in life. And as with all these early stories in Genesis, the writers touch on some very uh, universal human impulses. And in this case, the impulse to reach for greatness. Now, it's a long story, and there's a lot happening in there, but these two verses speak to the heart of it. In verses 4 and 5, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be what? Opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this is the first story we get in the Bible of a spiritual and existential conflict in the life of a person. It is about people feeling quite strongly that God might be holding out on them, that there's more for them, or that we might say there's more for me. And that simply being a child of God is not enough. Like it doesn't feel right. Like I need to be more than I am. And this is really the secret to understanding this story. The story is about this trap of advancement. This trap of advancement and what happens when we start to feel less than or not enough in our lives. I call it the storyline theology. Maybe you've heard this question before. What story is God writing with your life? Have you heard that before? Not from me, I promise you. Because we're not really good as humans at determining what that is. All we do is look for the things that are successful and we go, that must be it. Whereas when I read the Bible, everybody fails. Okay? What, is, what story is God writing with your life? Now, at first, it sounds really appealing. Like there's a world of excitement out there. But over time, what I've experienced, maybe what you've experienced, is that it becomes kind of a burden, another thing to achieve, another thing to advance. And you end up drifting unconsciously into this mindset that forwardness is the only real attribute of being a follower of Christ. And that can be really stressful, especially when there's downtimes, which is most of life. Amen? And I would look around and think, I'm not doing anything significant with my life. As a pastor uh, for many years, 
I've always been friends with pastors who lead giant churches. Some of my great friends are people who have blue check marks on their church Instagram pages, you know? Maybe it's because they post scripture and I post Jerry Garcia photos. But sometimes I would fall into that and just think, I'm not doing anything significant with my life, which is this natural result of living in a world and in a church world that often equates worthwhileness with the extraordinary. If it's not extraordinary, then something's not working. And the mistake that the church has made is creating this sense of urgency to escape the mundane rhythms of daily life and faith and enter into this idea of that there are greater things that God has planned, which can slowly bend our expectations of faith toward the conviction that God only works in and through us in extraordinary and exciting ways. And if there's a season of downtime or silence in our lives, we start to look around. Like, what's wrong? Why can't I get there? And so next time you're reading Genesis 3, which I know you're all doing this time of year, enter that story with the knowledge that this is about a conflict of two paths. Is God enough? Or is God holding out? Is there more for me? The oil to the water of the Genesis story, the other option, and the one that Scripture invites us into is the one that was read just before I walked up here, known as the Christ hymn in uh, Philippians chapter 2. I want you to hear just a few verses again. The Apostle Paul writes, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. And being found in appearance as human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And he makes this point clear, even death on a cross. It's one thing to die, but it's another to die on a cross in those days. The initial invitation is to be an imitator of Jesus. And the attribute the Apostle Paul focuses on here is the humility of Jesus. This willful dismantling of arrogance's potential. And the flow of the hymn is from the extraordinary to the mundane. These images of Jesus emptying himself, of humbling himself, even to the point, again, of death on a cross, which is not a victory. It's a defeat. It's a loss. And the whole hymn points toward this willful sense of loss in life. Now, for many ancient Christians, this hymn uh, would be a reality, during the years of much martyrdom across the Roman Empire. People really would die for their faith. But for the majority of the Christian community, then and now, this hymn functions more as a template for a kind of rule of life, a template for the way that we move through the world 
defined by a quietness in a world that demands such greatness. It's very counterintuitive. Now, some disclaimers. It would be unfair not to say this. There are situations in which God works through us in pretty remarkable ways. And he does so to bring some incredible things into someone's life. Yes, this happens. And God works through the church in ways that are only described as an act of grace. And, God's bl- and God blessing us with the opportunity to partner with him in his work in the world. These are all amazing and acts of grace. But they are gifts, not necessarily pursuits. And if we're honest, if I'm honest, being used by God in the life of someone else is more times than not humbling and frightening than it is a means of exaltation. If you're really in the throes of pain with someone and God is using you in those moments, it's not fun. It's nothing to like post about. It's terrifying. There's a humility that should overlay the whole situation. Another disclaimer is that there are also the unexpected blessings that come to our personal lives. They do. Blessings of support, of healing, of friendships, of even moments where we end up being involved with some kind of unforeseen and incredible thing that made a big impact on someone. These happen. They totally happen. God is not dead. He's just not interested in me becoming arrogant about these ways that he works through me. And the warning in Genesis and the invitation in Philippians are more about the growing addiction to greatness, of somehow seeing our lives as though we have to always be positioned for success and advancement. And instead, we're called to get comfortable with simply just being God's child. Amen? And living faithfully in whatever situation we find ourselves in. The Benedictine nun, Joan Chatister, read everything she writes. She says this, Life is, in fact, basically routine, largely uneventful, essentially predictable. Life is, by and large, more commonplace than exciting, more custom, customary than electrifying, more usual than unusual. Is that true? Yeah, of course it is. If you say otherwise, you're lying. Or you have a problem. <laughs> You're redlining all the time. Let me close with some thoughts here. Not that none of these have not been my thoughts, but let me close with these thoughts. <laughs> I know that some of you, because I know you, been here a long time, I know that some of you are very successful in what you do, and then the nature of what you do creates great impact in people's lives. I know that. I know who you are. And I know that some of you are influential in your worlds and that people benefit from your expertise and wisdom and charisma. I know that. These are true things. And I think what God would say to you today is this. Hold on to those things with great care 
steward them well, and maintain some measure of healthy skepticism that they would bring complete wholeness to your life. It's a softer way of saying be careful and be mindful. I was listening to the Mark Maron podcast. Um, I don't recommend it. It's a lot of profanity, although that doesn't bother me. Um, But he was interviewing one of the greatest living guitar players of all time, Derek Trucks. And Derek Trucks has been a phenom since he was a child. There are photos of him playing with the Allman Brothers on stage when he's 10 years old. He's no joke. And he ended up on this tour as a 12-year-old with some other great guitar players like Joe Bonamassa and the like. And there was this story that he told about as he was getting better and better and better and being asked to sit in with more bands as a 12-year-old. And he was backstage at a show, and his dad came up to him and said these words. He said, Derek, I've noticed that you're starting to walk different. Good southern dad. Like, what? what? But do you hear that tone of like, this success is beginning to change you. And I need you to keep that in check. You're starting to walk different. Like you matter more than you do. I also know that some of you feel completely invisible. Somewhat stuck in your life. And a little hopeless that you'll ever go anywhere. And what God would say to you today is this. And he's going to say it through me to you. There's nothing wrong with you. Amen? Nothing. I don't feel like I'm doing anything in the world. Who cares? God is way more concerned about what's happening in you than through you. That's the most important thing. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing to be afraid of. And my hope for all of you this morning, my goal is that you would be able to take a deep breath And know how much that you are loved by God just as you are. And as we pursue our relationship with God each and every day, that we come to a fuller knowledge of our significance found only in God. The great rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and I'll close with this, says this about the Sabbath. He compares space and time. Space for Heschel is about the material, and time is about a holiness, a moment. And he writes, to gain control of the world of space is certainly one of our tasks. The danger begins when we, in gaining power in the realm of space, that we forfeit all aspirations in the realm of time. There is a realm of time where the goal is not to have but to be, not to own but to give, not to control but to share, not to subdue but to be in accord Life goes wrong when the control of space, the acquisition of things of space, becomes our sole concern. And so we live in this world that's at tension with our faith. We have to do the things. We have to go to work. We have to make the advancements that we're called on to make. And yet, we keep a balance of what matters. 
I don't have this on the slide, but there's this great little line in the New Testament letter of Thessalonians where Paul says, and see to it that you live quiet lives. It's just a little one-off, and it's so heavy. Just live a quiet life, knowing that you are God's child, and that is all you need. Amen. Bobby was a kid from around the town Kicks pumped up and head held down Underwater more than he was up He dreamed submarines in bottle green Imaginary flight machines But in blue jean flares he bubbled like a seven-up Everybody wants to know you When you're the only one to know Shoot it till you feel alive and play one more